0: Good morning, everybody. So, I hope you still have your Bibles open to 1 John, because that's what we're going to be looking at today. I'd like to ask a question. Uh, What do you do, not so much in the summers, but when you are attending a church, let's say in September, October? Think about our church, and you're coming to the church and it has a whole lot of people, and then all of a sudden, next week, you come, and there's several people missing. And the following week after that, there's several people missing. And then after that, there's several people missing. And you start to sense, wow, what's going on in the church here? We have a large group of people that have left. And those people are talking to individuals outside the church. And you're hearing about that and beginning to wonder, huh, I wonder what's happening. What's going on? These people are teaching different things than what we believed in the church. And they're acting differently than what we believed in the church. What do you do? you start to ask these questions like, "Ha, huh, I wonder if our truth is really true. We begin to wonder, is Jesus the way or not? Because they seem to know things, and they seem to have things that other people are attracted to. So what exactly do we do? How do we respond to that? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd give us your wisdom and your grace that we would understand this book that this book truly would accomplish its purpose in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. So we come out of a series on the seven deadly sins. I'm sure when you first heard that and thought about that, wow, what's this going to be? What's this going to be about? The goal and the hope, the pastoral hope and pastoral goal, was that you would all develop a true sensitivity and an awareness of sin in your own life, of how sin affects us, How it tends to make us blind, stubborn, cowardly fools. And how it's not just simply an action. It's not just something that we do, but it's also an attitude. And it even goes deeper than that. It goes deep into our hearts. There's an indwelling sin in our hearts that we need to peel back and be able to see the idols that are a part of our lives But not only a deeper appreciation, excuse me, a deeper sensitivity and awareness of our sin, but the hope of that series was also that we would have a deeper appreciation for and a reliance upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that gospel promises and delivers forgiveness of sins. It promises and delivers freedom from shame. It promises and delivers a breaking of that authority of sin. So that was the pastoral aim, the pastoral goal. We trust that that sermon series did that for you. But we start a new book today, a new book, 1 John. Our theme for this whole series is going to be that, our joyful assurance in Jesus Christ. The key verse for the book, the key verse that, that John actually describes for us as to why he is writing these things is 1 John five thirteen. Where he says this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So, as we go through this, we're going to open up that theme and explain that theme as John proclaims that to us. What I'd like to do this morning before we actually look at our four verses is lay a bit of a foundation, look at some background of the book and see if we can learn a little bit about that. And so as we enter into these verses and begin to understand that, we'll know where we're coming from. It was written by the Apostle John. Most, Almost all external authorities as well as internal factors indicate that. It was probably written from Ephesus in Asia Minor, or today, Turkey, you can see John's tomb there in that picture. And it was probably written to one or more of the churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3. John is re- uh, reportedly to have lived his last few, li- last few years there in the Ephesus area and was a bishop or a local bishop for all of the churches in that Revelation 2 3 uh, path where all those churches resided. The purpose and theme of the book. We're talking about a group that has left this church. He talks about that in 1 John 2.19. A group that has take- gone out... John says they were not part of us but their false teaching has somehow begun to infect and infiltrate and John wants to lead the believers there to understand that they truly have can have an assurance and a confidence that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true an assurance and a confidence that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true that would be his pastoral goal the theme i would like to say is this we know what it means We know what it means to know God. We make that proclamation, that bold statement, we know God. And what it means in this book to help us see and understand that we can have assurance is that we have fellowship with Him and we have fellowship with others. We have true life through believing in Him. We love our fellow believers and we walk as Christ walked. All of those things sum up what it means to know God. And we know that. We understand that. When we think about the term assurance, sometimes people confuse two different terms that we talk about theologically. And I'd like to just simply explain what those two terms are. We often use the term eternal security. Eternal security is different from assurance. Eternal security says, I am saved eternally. Eternal security says that God preserves us in our faith. God protects us in our faith. God guarantees our salvation. And there are various passages in Scripture, as well as major theological points that go into that understanding. We would often say, in a vernacular phrase, I will not lose my salvation. Assurance is different. Assurance says, I know I am saved. One says, I know I am saved eternally. Assurance says, I know I am saved. I know I am on the path of truth. And we have several things that we can look at with regard to that. One is an objective set of facts. We can look through the Gospel of John, like John 3.16.18, John 5.24, John 6.47, John 11.25 and, 20, and 26, that says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. So we believe the promises that God has given to us, and those objective promises give us that assurance. We don't call God a liar. We believe that God says is true. We also have an internal witness. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit of God witnesses to our spirit that we are his children. So people don't understand that, but we can actually say, I know that to be the case. The Spirit of God does that for me. And then there's, as it were, subjective things. Subjective things in the terms of God's working in our hearts, the gospel bringing transformation into our lives that remind us that we are his children, that remind us that we are saved. We would have passages like 2 Peter 1, 10, and 11, as well as the book that we're going to look at in this series. One other thing I want to share, and then we'll look at our verses. When John is talking in this book, and as we read this book, and I trust you will be reading the book as we go through it, you're going to find categories. You're going to find John as, he, as if it, he is drawing groups Over here and another group over here, he does that grammatically. He does that with various themes. But he is reminding us, this is the group that is left. This is the group that is teaching wrongly. This is the group that's leading wrongly, living wrongly. And we over here, we believe in Christ. We understand doctrinally who Jesus is. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we walk in righteousness in accord with what Jesus did. You're going to see that in the book as he says over and over again, by this you know, by this we know, in this we know. And John is seeking to tell us, to assure us, they're wrong. We're in the truth. And we can rest in that with a confidence and an assurance. If you have your Bibles, let's look at John, 1 John 1, to 1-4 then. What's this passage about? What's this, these four verses What's the main theme that we can draw out of these four verses? Well, I would suggest to you that it's this, and it seems rather basic, but for John, it's extremely important. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is important. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is important. It's important for our assurance. It's important for the gospel. And for John, that's what he wants to start out as he enters into this letter to assure these people of their faith. Assure these people of their salvation, of their relationship with God. He wants to start with this foundational truth. It's not just a Christmas issue. It truly is the foundation for the gospel and our assurance. I'd like to read the verses again. Thank you, Abby, for reading them before. I want to read them again because I want to just simply point out the various things that are in these verses. Four verses. I'm not going to delve in any great deep things. You can read these things. You can understand these things. However... For us to understand emotionally what John is saying. To read it again is good for all of us. That which was from the beginning. That which we have heard. What we have seen with our eyes. What we have looked at. And touched with our hands. Concerning or about. The word of life. And that life. The life I just talked about. That life was manifested opened up, and we have seen and we testify and we proclaim to you this eternal life which was toward the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. What is he talking about? What is John saying here? What are some of the truths that we can draw out of this to help us to understand these verses? The first point I want us to see, he wants us to see, is the incarnation is real. We throw around the word true or truth. I'm going to make it that. The incarnation is real. For him, and he wants them to understand, if this group over here, us over here, is walking in the truth, the foundation is that Jesus Christ, the incarnation, is real. These false teachers over here have somehow denied the humanity of Christ. Today we talk about the deity of Christ and all the people that deny the deity. In the first century, denying the humanity of Christ was a major issue for these people. Notice how he says, Jesus is real. Now go through and I'm going to pick out the verbs. I want you to see the verbs for me. Verse 1. That which we have heard. We have heard. That which we have seen. That which we've seen with our eyes, excuse me. That which we have looked at. The Greek word there is behold. The same thing in John 1:14, we have beheld him full of grace and truth. As if on a stage being acted out in our presence. He's real. And we have touched with our hands. But please notice, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He says in verse 2 We have seen. It is manifested. It's been opened up. It's been exposed. So we see. Verse 3 We have seen and we heard. Over and over and over again, John wants to assure these people that as these, this group has left and they've sort of taken people with them and we begin to wonder, is our true truth? Is our truth true? Is Jesus the right way? This is what you understand. Jesus is real. We've heard with our ears. We have seen with our eyes. We have beheld as if on a stage. We've touched him with our hands. And just in case you missed it, I'll say it again. We've heard. We've seen. We've touched. And notice how each one of those gets stronger and stronger and stronger and more intense. You can hear from a distance, then you see a little bit up close, then you behold on a stage, then you touch physically with your hands. He's real. And not only is that reality something that is true, it has ongoing benefits. All of these verbs, all of these verbs in Greek are in the perfect tense, which says this. I I heard and I still hear. I saw and I still see. We beheld and we still behold. We've touched him. I still recognize it. Increasing intensity. A reminder that it's ongoing. Jesus Christ is real. Jesus Christ is real. The repetition is important the intensity of the verbs is important. Because this doctrine is being questioned. That's why Jesus, excuse me, John is saying these things. He has come in the flesh. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. It's not just the effect it's had on him. It's changed him. It's transformed him. How do I say that? Why do I say that? He says this in verse 2. We testify... And we proclaim. We testify and we proclaim. Verse 3, the same verb again. We proclaim to you. John recognizes this is real, and if this is real, this truth means that it has to be proclaimed and talked about. We testify, we raise our hand as if in a court. This is true about what I'm about to say. We proclaim, we make an announcement to the world, and this is ongoing in this book, and this is an ongoing thing that he is doing regularly talking about who Jesus is the identity of who Jesus is the foundation of the gospel to remind us again this is true this is real he's testified to and proclaimed then this is the message this is the message of the gospel the foundation of the gospel truly is the person and work of Christ and we emphasize a lot about the excuse me the death and the resurrection of Christ rightfully so And yet it is the person of Christ that John is emphasizing and focusing on. It is who Jesus is. It is the reality of his humanity. It is the reality that for us, when we talk about Jesus, he is true and complete man. He is true and complete God. And because he is that way, he saves us. He can save us. Testified to and proclaimed. What is it that they proclaim? Notice verse 1. He says concerning the word of life. Now we can take that all the way back to John 1. 1, the word was with God, etc., etc. I think here it's just talking about this is the message of life as he goes on. And he says this, this life was manifested, this life. What kind of life is it? It is eternal life. Life that is eternal. And please notice it says it was with the Father and was manifested to us. With the Father, Toward the Father. Exactly what John says in the Gospel about the Word. The Word was with God or toward God, face to face with God, fellowship with God. That life is not just eternal life in the sense of a concept, not the gift that's given to us. It is Jesus Himself. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is not just the giver of life. He is the manifestation of life. And he is the proclamation that we say to the world. The life. This eternal life. This life is not just long, ongoing life. It's not life that is forever, as it were. It is God-given life. It is God's life shared with us. It is abundant life. It is the fullness of life. It is life as it is meant to be lived. It is fully satisfying life. The bread of life. That which The water that gives us life. The light of the world that gives us light. All of these things, the fullness, the satisfaction, the goodness and the beauty is in Him. It was with the Father, toward the Father, and it has now been manifested. And we proclaim it to you. We proclaim it to you, this eternal life. It involves the Spirit. It involves the Son. Let me read you a passage that I think is one of the best, clearest passages that talks about this and explains it a little bit better. Titus 3, 4 through 7 says this. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope or the certainty of eternal life. We've been regenerated. We've been washed. We've been renewed. We are new creatures. That's the life. That's the life. Not in this group over here. In our group over here. We proclaim that to you. We testify to you the truth of that because we have seen and beheld and touched and heard. It's real. And what is this all for? As this life is proclaimed, this life is manifest, this life is testified to, he says this, so that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John 17, 3 says, Eternal life is to know Him, the One who sent Him, as well as His Son. Fellowship is a a Christianese term. We tend to out in the world talk about we have a, quote, relationship with God. This is the biblical term for that. A sharing, a sense of that which is common. We have a faith that is common in our midst, and therefore we have an intimate, close relationship Warm intense relationship called fellowship. Fellowship is not based on coffee and donuts. Fellowship is not based on the sharing of the Detroit Lions or the Detroit Tigers. Fellowship is not based on talking about our jobs. Our fellowship, our fellowship, is with God the Father and God the Son, and we share that with one another. And that's the reason for this life. That's the reason for proclaiming this that we would have this depth, this intimacy this richness that we call fellowship. John Owen uses the term communion. Our communion with God and our communion with one another based on our trusting in Christ has united us together with him, has united us together with each other. So we have he is real, the incarnation is real, it is testified to and proclaimed, It gives us life, eternal life, fullness of life, abundance life, goodness and truth, and all of that richness, as well as fellowship and intimacy, a closeness with God, with God the Son, with each other. And all of that leads to verse 4. These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. Our joy may be made fulfilled. Our joy may be full. All of us together, based on the fullness of salvation and the fullness of what that knowledge gives to us, we rejoice with a fullness of joy that Peter described as being unable to be expressed. So, what do all these things mean for us today? Big so what the incarnation. We talked about this at Christmas. What does this all mean? Well, let's go back and look at each one for just a minute. The incarnation, as I said, it's not just for Christmas. It was denied by these teachers. Somehow the humanity of Christ was nothing for them, whether this was proto-gnosticism or docetism or Corinthianism, and you don't have to worry about those words, you'll forget them anyway. The false teachers that were beginning to show up in those days, was he a ghost? Was he an apparition? Was the Christ, quote-unquote, coming on him at the baptism and leading before? We don't know all that. But the group has left, and these people are somehow teaching this. Jesus did not come in his humanity, and John wants us to understand he did. That was denied by them. This is the truth. This is the key for us to know the truth. For John, this is what the start is. This is the starting point. Jesus coming in the flesh. So why is the incarnation important? John 1.18 says, Jesus revealed, he exegeted God to us. No one has seen the Father. Jesus has explained the Father to us in coming in the flesh. In Hebrews chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 10, his incarnation makes his death possible. His incarnation makes him available and able to be a faithful and merciful high priest to us. His incarnation makes him able to be an obedient son and that obedience is important because that's what's imputed to us, his righteousness. His obedience is important. The incarnation is important for all the aspects of our salvation. So, not just at Christmas. Not just in Christmas hymns. A reality that we think about and talk about and praise God for and think about its meaning all the time. Secondly, he talks about fellowship. What is fellowship? What does fellowship mean to us? I want to read you a passage that to me is the, my number one passage about this. It's in Philemon. So I get to preach at another church next week, and this will be my passage. Philemon chapter, chapter, Philemon verse 6. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. We don't think that word, do we? Effective. Not warm, not close, not fun, effective, useful. Through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Wow. Knowing who we are in Christ, knowing our full identity in Christ, knowing everything that we have in Christ, that's the basis for our fellowship to be effective. Here it's an understanding, a fullness of an understanding of all that salvation is and who Jesus is. But our fellowship can then be effective as we stimulate one another unto good love and good works, according to Hebrews 10. We, know, we need to know these spiritual realities, and it makes our fellowship, as he goes on to say about Philemon, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. What a great thought. It was so good to be with Sebastian today. Not because we played soccer. Not because it's it, Sebastian refreshed my soul. I can't wait for the next time. I can't wait for the next time to be with Josh or Mike or John or Mark because they refresh my soul. That's great. Fellowship. Knowing God. We boast in that truth. And then lastly... He talks about our full joy. Our full joy. Joy in the New Testament, guys, comes from this. It's understanding spiritual realities and how they impact my life. It's not World Series triumphs. It's not sports. But think about our joy. Don't you think about our joy? We go, John Holderbaum got a hole in one. Woo! Sebastian scored three goals. Wow! Yes! Josh Rickard hit a home run over the building. Wow. We rejoice our successes. Oh man, Mike preached and 25 people came to Christ. Isn't that great? We spoke, and some spirits left. And Jesus would say, Rejoice in the fact that your names are written in the book of life. And our rejoices, what? Oh, yeah, praise God. No. There's a fulfillment of joy. In these spiritual realities. I came up with this quote today. I found it. I want to read it to you. It's by Ray Ortland. He says this Let joyful song explode out of you. He's talking about Isaiah 54 1, which Ray Ortland says is probably the least obeyed command in Scripture. You can look it up later. Our exaggerated sense of decorum is the vast last bastion of pride holding out against the gospel. Some churches make it a virtue, but God doesn't. In his exuberance, he's creating a new world of boisterous happiness through Christ. We must rejoice with him or we may risk making our hearts impervious to salvation because that holy, raucous joy is salvation. John wants us to have an assurance Salvation is real. Salvation is true. We need to believe it. We need to accept it. We need to understand that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book and this opportunity to learn more about what it means to fellowship with God and the reality of the incarnation and what that incarnation means for our salvation. I pray, Father, that we would all leave here rejoicing in the fellowship we have, rejoicing in the salvation we have, and the truth and the reality of the incarnation. And We pray all these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen.